No filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Good to see you. Um, Verse one here says, be imitators of God. Okay, that's a pretty lofty goal, (laughs) right? And uh, I don't know about you, but when I read verses in the Bible like that, it is easy um, for me to get discouraged. Uh, Discouraged as a Christian, especially when texts like this one Come along, texts that give orders, texts that give commands. And there are a lot of those in the scripture without question. And this text goes on, as you just heard, to talk about sex and money and tells us that our lives must be formed in a certain way when it comes to these topics. But then we look at our lives and we don't see what we think we ought to see and we get troubled, we get down, we get, as I said, Discouraged. It reminds me of my relationship with my front yard, the grass in my front yard. Super discouraging in a city like San Antonio. April, we don't have a sprinkler system, by the way. So in April and May, man, things were looking really good. And then June and July and August, (laughs) September and October come along and, and you see brown and you see brutal heat and you see weeds. And I go out there with a water hose trying to spray the grass, thinking this is the stupidest waste of time of all time. Why am I doing this? It's going to be 197 in three minutes. And uh, it's just discouraging because it never feels like it's enough. What's it going to take to get some green grass around here? other than breaking every law on the books in San Antonio for water conservation, which I know some of you are guilty of, by the way. Um, But when we look deeper, we we might feel that way as Christians, right? But when we look deeper into texts like this, I think that God gives us real hope, real hope behind these kinds of texts with their commandments. And the hope has been summarized by a very famous ancient Christian theologian named St. Augustine in this way. He says, God gives what he commands. God gives what he commands. And that, by the way, makes Christianity unique among all other religions. God gives us his grace. God gives us his spirit for free. And then out of our new identity, he gives us a new way of living and the power to do it. 
So the Christian life is not do this and then you will live. Rather, the Christian life is God saying, I've made you alive. So do this. Remember where we're at in Ephesians. If you haven't been with us, maybe let me catch you up. The first half of this letter, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, are about just that. They're about what God has done for us as sinners and rebels in and through Jesus Christ. We've read that he forgives us of all of our trespasses. He raises us up to new life in Christ and that he's also brought us into what Paul calls the new humanity. And all of this is by grace Through faith, it's not from your own doing, lest anyone should boast. The first half of the letter is Paul's explanation of what God has done. Now, we're knee-deep into the second half of the letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6, which are about our lifestyles and how our lifestyles as Christians are also going to be radically transformed along with our identities and along with our communities because of the work of Jesus. So one way to show the difference between the first and second halves of this letter is to see this. In Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, there is one command. And the command is remember in chapter 2, verse 11. The only time Paul, God, under inspiring Paul by the Holy Spirit, commands us to do something is when he says, hey, remember the gospel. One command. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, there are 40, 40 commands And so Paul's here intentionally describing how our practical living should fall into obedience to God's law because of what he's done for us in Christ. And we've seen that Paul uses various metaphors. One is the language of walking. He uses that in verse 1 of chapter 4. Verse 17 of chapter 4, again here in verse 2 of chapter 5, and verse 9 of chapter 5. Walk and Our general direction, he's saying, our our lives path should be governed by these demonstrable signs of obedience. Another metaphor that we looked at last week is the changing of clothes. He's told us to, to put off and to put on. And here in this passage, we have yet another metaphor, the metaphor of, of darkness and light, darkness and light. And we've been, as Paul says, brought into the light. Therefore, we should live as children of light. He says, once we were darkness and we lived in darkness, but now if you've trusted into Jesus, we are in a whole new realm of existence. So what Paul's teaching here is what it looks like for us to live as children of light, to walk in the light, to put on the light. And so I want to look at these verses with you in, in three parts So let's do that together this morning. First, if you'll look at verses 1 and 2, you'll see the first section, which is the command and its grounding. The command and its grounding. The governing idea of the whole passage is what I've already said. Paul tells us to be imitators of God. And you'll see the word therefore is used at the beginning of the verse. So Paul's saying that this idea of being an imitator of God is both a summary of what he's just written in chapter 4, 17 through 32. And it's also a preview, an encapsulation of what he's about to write really all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, which we're going to cover in the next few weeks. He's saying to be a Christian means that we more and more mimic, that's the word literally used here, that we mimic God himself. 
imitate him, be like God. Theologians helpfully have distinguished what they call the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. Incommunicable attributes of God are things like his omnipresence. God is everywhere at once. His omnipotence, he's all-powerful. Those are attributes of God's that we cannot be. They cannot be communicated to us, hence their name, incommunicable. But there are other attributes of God that are communicable attributes. Things like his goodness or his truthfulness or his holiness. And this is a part of what the Bible means when it says that we as human beings are made in the image, in the image of God. God made every single one of you. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. It doesn't matter your background, the color of your skin, the language you speak. You are made in God's image. You are created to imitate, to reflect, to mirror God. Now, human sin has marred, not destroyed entirely, but marred that image. But the Christian life is, in a sense, the recovery of the imitation, the imaging, the mimicking of God. That's what Paul means when he writes in another letter. In 2 Corinthians 3, he says this, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, listen, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're all made to image God, and being a Christian means we're more and more and more living into that. And I think this makes some intuitive sense to us. All kids, just by wiring and nature, imitate their parents for better, sometimes for worse, as all of us parents know. That's why as kids, or if you're here and you're a kid, we often pretend to be like our parents, to do what our parents do. Sweet little Isla Kanaik comes into the office a couple, once a week or so with Lauren. And uh, when Lauren comes into work, and one of the things Isla will do is get out into the floor of, of the lobby and pull out a phone and set the phone on the ground and pull out a, a pad of paper and begin writing. And I can hear her in my office saying, Mom, I'm going to work. I'm going to work like you do. She's imitating what her mom does. She's a hard worker, just like her mom, by the way. I, I used to do the same thing when I was a kid. My dad was... A preacher, and one of the things my brothers and I would do, this probably tells you more than you need to know about me, but we would imitate Christian worship services, and I didn't get to be the music director. Kevin won't let me be the music guy now, and my brothers wouldn't let me be the music guy then. One of my brothers would get up and, you know, conduct the choir, and I would get up and preach a probably pretty rotten sermon. But the point was, I would imitate my father. It was wired into me just like it's wired into you as humans. You imitate your parents. That's part of what it means to be an image bearer. And that idea of how we like to image our parents gets us to the key. It gets us to the heart of this first point. Look at what Paul says. We imitate God as beloved children. This is the grounding of the command. Now you've got to listen to me here or you're going to get all screwed up in your Christian walk. Listen, We imitate God because we are his kids, not in order to become his kids. Most people think that Christianity 
is about this. You live in a certain way, and then you're called a Christian. But that's the exact opposite of the truth. We are made God's children through adoption into God's family. That's what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 5, where he wrote that God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then because of that new reality, we live in a certain way. We imitate God. Verse 2 says the same thing. Look at what it says. Walk in love. There's a command, but look at what it says next. It grounds it. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. We walk in love because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Not so that Christ will love us. If you don't think of yourself as God's dearly loved child... It's very hard to be a Christian in your daily life. If you don't think of yourself as God's beloved child, it's hard to imitate him. What distinguishes? What distinguishes the love of a parent from other types of love? What distinguishes the love of a parent? It's how persistent it is. It's how dogged it is. It's how undying it is. Why do we sometimes say, that kid has a face only a mother could love? (laughs) It's because it's true. It's because it's true. Only a mom can love that way. Why do we find our hearts knit to our children, even when they're complete jerks, by the way, which can be the case? So much so that we can't be happy if they're not happy. It's because that's the kind of love that parents have for their children. God is like that. God loves you in just that way. He set that kind of fatherly affection on us. He loves us with an undying, never giving up, strong love. That's why the Bible tells us that everything ultimately is going to work out for our good. It's because God, who controls everything, has a fatherly heart towards us. That's why the Bible says that when we're in hard times and dark seasons, that's God's fatherly discipline because the Lord Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Only when we get that we're already children can we imitate the father. Don't try to imitate God apart from the reality of your new identity. Only in the grounding of your identity can we then be imitators. What kind of love has the father shown to us? that we should be called sons and daughters. And so we are. Praise the Lord. So we're called because of that to imitate him. Secondly, Paul talks about darkness and its consequences. So first we saw the command and its grounding. Here we see the darkness and its consequences. We're to walk in love, we read, to imitate God because we're his children. And now Paul says that means we leave behind the darkness. We leave behind our old clothing, our former way of living. And what he does next in verse 3 all the way through about verse 8 is hone in on two of the most significant aspects of living in darkness. The first of those is what he calls sexual immorality. And the second is what he calls covetousness, covetousness or greed. And he says, look there very carefully that we must avoid these. Verse five, these must not even be named among you. 
verse 12, that it is shameful to even speak of the things that they, those in the darkness, do in secret. Our lifestyles as children of light must be radically different from the way of darkness. Let's look at that a little bit further, okay? The word translated there, sexual immorality, is a word in Greek called porneia, from which we get our word pornography. And it is a, what I call a junk drawer term. It refers to any type of sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. The second word there, which is used twice in verse 3 and verse 5, is the word covetousness, which refers to the love of money and the love of possessions. Here's how the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones defines it. Look at what he writes. Quote, This means, of course, covetousness, avarice, the love of money, love of money as money, love of money partly for itself and partly because of what it can do for us, the things we can buy with money, the things we can procure with money, the things we can do if we have money. In fact, the love of all that money can do and achieve. That is what Paul is condemning under the word covetousness. There's this old story of John D. Rockefeller, the famous business titan of the 19th century in America. When asked how much money will be enough, he says, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That, my friends, is covetousness. So why does Paul mention these two things? Why does he single out sins surrounding sex and sins surrounding money specifically? Look with me. Almost in a throwaway sentence, he says there in verse 5, For you may be sure of this, everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. Now notice, that is an idolater. Hmm. Paul mentions these two things because these are the most common two ways in which what he calls our idolatry manifests itself. The darkness of sin is not just breaking arbitrary rules that God has set up for us. Sin is idolatry. It is the project of creating false gods and worshiping them. What sin does, and our hearts are masterful factories of this, what sin does is it takes good things, like sex and money, by the way, that God has given, and it transformed those good things into objects of worship. And sex and money are the two major examples of this throughout the human story and still today. They are good things that we, in our rebellion against God, turn into ultimate things. We turn them into things of worship. Martin Luther, the great reformer, in, a, in an amazing insight in his commentary on Ephesians, which I read this week, says this. He says that no one can break any of the Ten Commandments, you know, you shall not steal, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, so on and so on, without also breaking the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. All sin is also idolatry. Paul writes that because of the idolatrous nature of our hearts that manifest through specifically sexual immorality and covetousness, that there are consequences for those who walk in the darkness, for those who give themselves to these things. Look at what he says. First, verse 5, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance. That's the first consequence. 
has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The person who walks, now that's a key word, who walks in sexual immorality, who walks in greed, will not enter the kingdom. And look, he's very forceful there. He says, for you may be sure of this. My friends, what Paul means is that the change in lifestyle that conversion brings means that this sort of behavior must no longer be an ongoing part of our lives. Now, keep in mind that Paul is writing this letter to Christian people. (laughs) He he says to Gentiles in verse 17 of chapter 4, don't walk like Gentiles anymore. He's writing, flee these things. Don't be defined by these things to Christians. Implicit in that is that these patterns of living were still a struggle. If they weren't, why would Paul need to write them? They were still a struggle for the Ephesian Christians and they're still a struggle for us. And that's just the point. Only if these things are a struggle for you in your fight against them, can you be certain that your identity has really been changed because you're seeing marked difference in your lifestyle. Non-Christians don't struggle with sexual immorality and they don't struggle with greed. Christians are the ones who struggle with these things. So Paul's not saying that if you have one slip up or that if you fail at one point in either of these areas, you are not an inheritor. But he is saying that you must repent and believe and walk as a child of light because of what God fundamentally does to us when we meet Jesus, if we've really met Jesus. If we refuse to repent of these idols, if we don't struggle with them but give in, it's to them that Paul says, you will not enter the kingdom. There's a second consequence. He mentions it in verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That word wrath can make some of you misunderstand. God's wrath is not this unbridled rage, okay, which is what our wrath often is. God's wrath, rather, is his steady opposition to and condemnation of all that is wrong. Did you hear that? God's wrath is his steady opposition to and condemnation of all that is evil. And the scripture is clear. His wrath is on all sin, So this text is teaching that if you are here and you are a sinner, you are not just broken, you are also guilty. Your sin incurs God's judgment, God's wrath. Now, it's not even worth mentioning, but I'm about to mention it, that people push back on that today. You might be pushing back on that. People say very regularly, and your heart might be saying, yeah, there's some people There's some people out there that deserve God's wrath, the Nazis. These people who are, you know, beheading little ones in Palestine and Israel, the worst of the worst. But most people aren't like that. Most people actually are pretty decent. I'm pretty decent. I'm pretty good. I'm not religious, but I'm a good person. I try to do what's right. Isn't that what's important? Let me tell you a story. This is from Pastor Tim Keller. It's one of the most famous illustrations he ever gave, which means I've stolen it from him before, and you've probably heard it. Uh, But I'm about to steal it from him again. Keller tells this story. Imagine um, an old widowed woman who has an only son. And she tells her only son, 
that if you want to be successful, there's three things that you should do in your life. You should work hard, you should be frugal, and you should be honest. And she gives him that instruction, and then she devotes her life to him. She makes all kinds of sacrifices for him. She gives of her money and of her time, and she puts him through high school, and then she puts him through college, and she sets him up for a successful life because of her love, because of her attentiveness, because of her caring sacrifice. And so this young man grows up and does all the things his mom told him to do. He's frugal, he's honest, and he works hard but he never speaks to her again. He obeys those three commandments per se, but there's never a Christmas card. There's never a phone call. There's never a text. He doesn't talk to her at all, but he's good. He does everything he asked. Is that okay? No, that's not good enough. It's simply living a good life at ignoring the relationship with the one person to whom he owes everything. A Christian understands that it is not enough to say, I'm actually pretty decent and completely subtract the living God out of your life. A Christian understands that he or she, in fact, is guilty. That's what sin does. That's what the dark side brings, the just and righteous wrath of a God who is holy. My friends, listen, when we hear these kinds of verses, we should pause and honestly, we should let the Holy Spirit convict us and we should listen to God's call to turn. If these things are defining your life, uh uh-oh, kids are already coming back. Uh Uh-oh. If these things are defining your life, that means I'm over time. You're going to have to stick with me. Uh, Do not associate with them. Verse 7. You're in danger if these things are defining your life. Walk as children of light, verse 8. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, verse 11. Let the Holy Spirit convict you and come back to Christ. Last thing, third, the light and its fruit. Okay, we've seen the command and its grounding, the darkness and its consequences, the light and its fruit. Look at what Paul writes, verse 8. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Again, look, notice the order of things here. Notice the order of things. God has made us light. He has brought us into the light. And only then does God say, walk as children of light. That is the Christian way. We remember who we are through the renewal of the mind, that we are in Christ, that we are in the light, but we don't stop there. That leads us to work. It leads us to walk. It leads us to put sin to death through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It it leads us to strive to obey. Pastor James Boyce put it this way. He says, holiness is not a condition into which we drift, but rather an active working out of what has already been worked in to us. So what does it mean to walk as children of light? He tells us, we're not going to get to all of this, but let's just wrap up by looking at verse 9. He tells us that there's, there's fruit in light. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Can we meditate on those ideas as we wrap up? The fruit of light is found in all that is good. God is good. That means that he is benevolent. He makes the rain fall on the wicked and the not wicked. 
So children of light should also be good. We should look out for one another. We should have a concern to alleviate suffering, to mitigate wrong. The unfruitful works of darkness are focused entirely on self, but goodness is focused on others. Is goodness a habit of your life? Is it a way in which you are walking? The fruit of light is all that is right. That word really is the word righteous, which is a narrower word than the word good. Because the word righteous has has legal, judicial notions behind it. It means conformity to God's law. It's it's an uprightness, a, a manifestation of justice. So Paul's saying that the Christian is right and just. He is fair in his treatment of others. She keeps the law. They don't violate the rights of others. Again, the way of darkness is lawless. It's every man for himself with no thought of caring for the other. But the righteous person, on the other hand, knows the great grace that he or she has been given and sees God as worthy of honor and obedience and therefore seeks to live a life of equity and justice and conformity to God's good will. The righteous person is the one who more and more obeys and loves God even when they're alone, even when no one else knows it, even when they could easily do the opposite. Is righteousness something you walk in? The fruit of light is found in all that is true. Look at how many contrasts there are just in these verses between truth as a way of the children of light and the way of darkness. He says, verse 6, we can be deceived by empty words. Verse 12, it's a shame to speak of those things done in secret. Verse 11, unfruitful works of darkness are hidden and need to be exposed. In other words, the children of light are characterized by honesty, by by no deceit or pretense. They are open, they're above board, they're authentic, they're transparent, they're trustworthy, they're dependable. They mimic God who is truth. Are you living a life of truth? As we walk in the light, as children of light, Paul says we expose the work of darkness and others take notice. Uh, The NBA started this week. Marianne is super, super excited. That was sarcasm, by the way. Uh, National Basketball Association, for those of you that aren't aware of that. And um, I love the NBA. And one of the best things about the NBA is the inside the T inside the NBA, which is the TNT pregame and postgame show. And uh, I know I've lost half of you already, but you can just go ahead and start praying. I'll be done in just a minute. Um, inside the TNT, inside the NBA has uh, Shaquille O'Neal and Charles Barkley and Kenny Smith, three former NBA players who are very large, big people and also big personalities who are very much not Christians. And then the fourth guy is the anchor of the show. His name's Ernie Johnson. Everyone calls him EJ. And uh, Ernie Johnson uh, has six children, uh, four of whom he adopted And one of his sons, whom he adopted from Romania, has muscular dystrophy. And EJ is on the record for years now as being a very strong and faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And and Johnson works with these three very wealthy, very different, very non-Christian Hall of Fame athletes. And, And you know what? One of the best things about the show is how much those guys love and admire 
Ernie Johnson. In fact, this week I read uh, that Shaq had an opportunity to, to take a position leaving TNT and going to ESPN to do basketball commentary for the ESPN network. And he turned that job down. And when Shaq was being asked why he turned that, down, that job down, he said this, uh, it's because of EJ. And then he says this, quote, the goodness of Ernie Johnson is why I wanted to stay. That's what it means to live as a child of light. Your lifestyle is so different. It's so other that the darkness is cast away and people are drawn to it. Be imitators of God. Walk in the light because you're already his children. Let's pray.